because the EU is so complex, not only bureaucratically, institutionally, but also complex because of all these different cultures and interests that are involved, it is ambiguous, but it also has to be ambiguous. Because if everybody knew exactly what goal they were, gonna, they were trying to reach, you wouldn't get enough agreement, enough consensus to have everybody go for it together. you heard uh, was that of Todd Heisinger, Director of International Outreach here at the Acton Institute and the author of a brand new book called The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. We're very excited to have Todd's book out on the market and we will be talking with him uh, a little bit more extensively about the book and about Europe uh, in just a few moments right here on Radio Free Acton. In the meantime, I want to say hello to all of you. So, Hi, uh, my name is Mark Vandermoss. Good to be with you on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. We'll be talking with Todd Heisinger, as I said, in just a moment. Uh, before we get to that, I want to highlight a couple of events coming up on the Acton events calendar. You can always check that out at acton.org events. A big one coming up for us here in Grand Rapids will be happening uh, on February 29th. Uh, right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Celebration Cinema North, which is up uh, 2121 Celebration Drive Northeast in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It will be the Grand Rapids premiere of Poverty, Inc., uh, the new documentary that Acton uh, had a big hand in producing. Michael Matheson Miller, uh, our uh, research fellow here at the Acton Institute and the director of the film, will be there along with co-producer Mark Weber to take Q&A after the showing. But uh, we're very excited to have Poverty, Inc., showing on the big screen uh, for a premiere here in the hometown of the Acton Institute. And again, uh, February 29th at Celebration Cinema North, 6.30 p.m. is the time. You can head over to acton.org events to register for that one. There's also a bunch of other things coming up on the events calendar on acton.org events. Check it out in full because it will be worth your time. That being said, uh, I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get over to my interview with Todd Heisinger, here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Well, I am pleased uh, to have with me today on Radio Free Acton uh, a newly minted author. He's been here before with us on uh, Radio Free Acton a few times talking about Europe. He now has a book about Europe. It's Todd Heisinger, Acton's Director of International Outreach, he's here talking about a brand spanking new book called The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. And Todd, first of all, welcome. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you, Mark. And uh, you've, you've written this book. We've, we've, of course, talked about the various crises that are uh, facing the European Union uh, at this point in time that are still ongoing. Uh, and uh, I, I figured that as, as we're now talking about a book-length exposition of these problems and some pro proposed uh, reforms and, and so on, we, we better start with at least one definition here, because one of, one of the things you make distinction in the book about is the difference between 
uh, an international organization, a transnational organization, and a supranational organization. The EU, of course, is a supranational organization. Can you give us a bit of a background on what that means to be a supranational organization? Sure thing, Mark. Uh, supranational basically means above the nation state and above the nation state in an institutional sense, that there are institutions that exist and exercise governing functions above nation state level. That's what we have in Brussels with the European Union institutions. And it's the EU's utopian commitment to this type of supranational governance, which is in which the EU's powers take precedence over those of national governments, that is transforming Europe from a continent of democratically accountable nation states to a basically post-democratic order in which voters have less and less say in how they are governed. That's a, a pretty serious, uh, a pretty serious thesis statement there, because I think most Americans, when they think of Europe, we tend to think of Europe as you know the, a Western-style democracies, and and we don't think too much about the potential of uh, of a creeping totalitarianism in Europe. Uh, when we think of totalitarianism in Europe, we of course think you know Germany, uh, Italy, World War II, and and prior. We we kind of figured that uh, Europe was beyond that. But the EU today that that we see, you're right, it's a supranational organization, um, a governing body with regulations that supersede the national laws of the member states. Now, this, this is a vision of the EU that was strongly opposed, and you mentioned this in the book, strongly opposed by, by some in Europe, uh, some significant leaders in Europe. You mentioned Charles de Gaulle, uh, Margaret Thatcher, very strongly opposed this sort of supranational uh, model where nations cede sovereignty. And, and, and in fact, she heavily, very strongly promoted the idea of uh, the Euro European Union as a collection of sovereign nations uh, who would work together, maintaining their sovereignty, but work together towards common goals. Why were voices like Thatcher and de Gaulle uh, left aside uh, and not more influential in the EU's development? Yeah, in order to understand the EU, you need to look at its roots. And its roots are basically in the two world wars of the 20th century that devastated Europe. Um, European integration basically started with the first predecessor organization of the EU shortly after World War II. And the purpose was to overcome the rivalry between nation states in Europe, such as France and Germany, that had led to so many wars and so much suffering for so many decades, so many centuries. And a laudable goal there. Absolutely. To be sure. Absolutely. That's also very important to remember that, you know, when we're we're analyzing what the EU has become, we remember that it's very understandable as to why the EU or the European idea arose. And so the EU has always been about much, much more than what Margaret Thatcher wanted it to be, a free trade area, a customs union, something like that. It's always been an attempt to find a political structure that would do away with war in Europe. This laudable goal, unfortunately, has not been able to be realized in a way that's truly democratically accountable. Of course, the, the democracies in Europe are still democracies. But more and more and more, the laws and regulations that govern people in those democracies are made in Brussels with some weakened form of democratic accountability, but not real democratic accountability. People really doesn't, don't understand what's going on in the EU. They don't understand how it works. They don't have time to understand how it works. It's too complex. And it's making laws and regulations for them um, 
in at levels removed from the accountability of the people that they've elected. You write that uh, the EU, in in a lot of ways, is a project of the European elite. There, there's a there's an upper class of Europeans who are are driving this project. Uh, it, it 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 makes me think, of course, of the fact that we we have a similar situation in the United States. Our our we have an academic elite and a political elite who sort of do things, uh, and and more and more it seems they're disconnected from the actual will of the people uh, that they purport to govern. Uh, but but you talk about this uh, in Europe in 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 a way that that talks about the worldview of the elites. Europe, of course, has very strong Christian roots. Um, it's it's the cradle of, in, in a lot of ways, the cradle of Christianity. And Christianity, in an honest assessment of Europe's history, has a lot to do with the development of uh, the, the political systems, the, the, the individual rights that Europeans have enjoyed. Um, but but the, uh, the, the elites in Europe now seem to have a different worldview and a different understanding of human nature. How, is that, how does that shape the European project that, as they push it forward? I don't think the EU could have become what it's become in a culture that was still basically Judeo-Christian. Um, the, the cliche that we hear about Europe being basically post-Christian is, is true. Christianity has declined precipitously in Europe, um, especially since the end of World War II. And because of that, there's kind of been a, a vacuum in Europe in terms of what type of a life project makes life, gives, gives life a goal. And that really does play a huge role in this political utopia that is the EU. The EU is a political project that assumes that human beings can be transformed, that human life can be transformed through politics. It's much more of a soft utopia than, say, the political utopias of communism or fascism. It's basically still democratic, um, but it's, it's a utopia that puts the goal of world peace through new political structures higher than it puts the goal of relying on voters. And it also is a goal that ignores human reality, that people just simply do belong to a nation, a culture, a language, and that it's impossible to make a nation out of groups of people that are not one nation. The, the question, the, there's a couple of questions that flow from that, for, for me anyways, that you, you talk, again, and, and this is, is uh, throughout the book, we talk about the the lack of democratic legitimacy that afflicts the European Union. And I, I wonder, how is it possible that an organization that is as far-reaching as the EU is, and, and it, it is a very, uh, I think, an American citizen, as an American with a sort of a traditional mindset about government, I would look at the EU and the regulations and the things that come out of Brussels as being very intrusive in a lot of circumstances uh, that, that really goes into the day-to-day -day lives of the average European citizen. And it's an organization as well that, that really has a lot of power throughout the world in terms of political relations with other nations. In, in America, I think we just assume the EU, sure, it's just one of these big blocks that we do business with, we, we do foreign policy with. How was it possible for the EU to develop 
in to to be such a significant organization not only uh, internationally but within the lives of everyday European citizens without having um, real democratic uh, approval or, or legitimacy how is it how is it possible that that could happen above or or without the will of the voters I think there are three reasons for that one it's happened very slowly and very gradually two the goals and purposes of the EU have always been left very vague. And three, it's happened out of sight of everyday voters. First of all, slowly, the EU wasn't actually, didn't actually come into existence as the European Union until 1992. But there have been predecessor organizations to the EU um, since the European Coal and Steel Community was founded in 1951. So the forming of the EU was a process that took 40 years of slow, incremental progress toward more and more, something more and more resembling political union in Europe, toward more and more power being ceded by the nation states to the EU institutions in Brussels. It's been very slow. Second, it's been very vague. Um, there's a famous uh, phrase or term in Europe, the Monet method, named after Jean Monet, a Frenchman who was the principal intellectual architect of European integration. And Jean Monet realized this was his genius when the European coal and steel community was being founded right after World War II. He realized that in order for people to accept their own countries giving up their national sovereignty, you have to go incrementally, first of all. You can't take a great leap forward. And second, you have to be vague about it so that people don't really know exactly what's going on. And third, you have to kind of cloak it in an acceptable way. And the way Monet did it was by emphasizing the economic. In the European coal and steel community, by uniting the German and French coal and steel industries and also the other four founding members besides Germany and France under a higher authority so that their coal and steel industries would be not under their own power and they wouldn't be able to make war against each other, but also supposedly so that their coal and steel industries would be more effective. In other words, the economic idea following the European Coal and Steel Community was in 1957, the European Economic Community, which reminds people of a free trade area and other things that are relatively unobjectionable because it involves economic cooperation in order to increase prosperity. So there you have the vagueness, the kind of subterfuge of the Monet method. And thirdly, it's happened outside the view of everyday people. Um, it kind of happens in Brussels. Members of the national governments and the various national capitals are, of course, heavily involved, but it happens in a bureaucracy in Brussels that's very, very complex and out of the everyday sight of normal people. One reason I know what I know about the European Union is that as a diplomat, it was my job, my full-time job, for years to work with the European Union and understand it. People who don't have a job like that just don't have the time to understand it, and that includes Europeans. So it's happened out of the sight of voters. 
there are a lot of crises afflicting the European Union right now. There are also, in, in looking through the book, it, it seems to me there are internal fissures that I think were kind of baked into the cake. Uh, Europe, of course, is a, con or is a continent, I should say, uh, with many different countries, many different cultures, all with very strong and proud histories. And in bringing these, these countries together, you're naturally going to have some, um, especially in an organization that's set up to be as vague as the European Union, you're probably going to have some people working at cross purposes. And, and you mentioned, for instance, uh, the way that Germany views the EU is that uh, if you're a good German citizen, you support the EU because it's a way of showing that you repudiate the past of Germany, the terrible crimes that were committed in the name of your country. On the other hand, you have France. And the French, of course, see the EU as a way to sort of assert the superiority of French culture throughout more of Europe and to sort of, it's a promotional tool in some respects for France. So you have these internal differences there. And I've noticed just over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've made note of a couple of, of different articles that I thought were interesting in the context of the European question. One of them uh, being the, the difference not only with the, uh, between the old combatants in, in uh, World War I and World War II, but when you look at the, uh, in, at Donald Rumsfeld famously distinguished between old Europe and new Europe. That does seem to be, there does seem to be a real difference there in that uh, the, just the other day, and I, I sent you this link, I don't know if you checked it out, but the, there's a Polish uh, newspaper, uh, I think it's a, a more right-wing uh, paper, maybe a bit of a muckraking journal, but they, they had a cover uh, that depicted Europe as a woman wearing a dress that's, uh, uh, it's, it's made out to look like the European Union flag with the blue field and the stars. And she's obviously being attacked by various arms of men coming in to the picture, grabbing at her, pulling at her dress and such. And the, the title in Polish was The Rape of Europe. Uh, the Poles, uh, and I think in, in when you get into the Eastern Bloc countries, the former uh, countries dominated by the Soviet Union, they're much more... Uh, they're much more concerned about their liberty having just come out of that experience of being dominated by a communist country. On the other hand, if you go to Western Europe, where a more, um, for lack of a better term, politically correct ethos exists, the multicultural ethos exists, this cover causes outrage because it's racist and it's, uh, it's, it's terrible. Uh, and, and so you have, you have that sort of a distinction between old and new Europe. Then you have the migrant problem, and there, there was a, an article just the other day of a migrant hostel in Germany being burned down, probably through arson, and you have the local residents of the town cheering it on and trying to stop the firefighters from putting it out. And then you have additional problems uh, in the European Union with a country like Great Britain, which is discussing exiting altogether. Uh, there's a referendum coming up, I believe, in June. Uh, and so there are all of these different problems, both internal and then with the migrant crisis, the financial crisis. Well, the financial crisis is internal, but migrant crisis is an external crisis flowing into Europe. How is the European Union going to survive all of this? Is it possible for them to stay united? I know that's a lot. That's a big uh, chunk of information. But, but it just seems like such an overwhelming pressure right now on this union. How can it survive? Well, Mark, thanks. thank you very much for that. Great question for the very astute observations. <laughs> we, we can Union. actually schedule a second podcast for you to answer all of that because that was a very long question. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. First of all, um, what what your your question makes me think of is a chapter in the book 
which is called The Cloak of Constructive Ambiguity. And that has to do with the previous discussion we just had. You know, um, because the EU is so complex, not only bureaucratically, institutionally, but also complex because of all these different cultures and interests that are involved, it is ambiguous, but it also has to be ambiguous. Because if everybody knew exactly what goal they were, gonna, they were trying to reach, you wouldn't get enough agreement, enough consensus to have everybody go for it together. And so the EU is very much characterized by constructive ambiguity. What is the EU and where do we want to go with this project? That is a question that is, has always been and remains extremely important in Europe. Is the European project unraveling? The second part of your question. We have actually reached the point where that might be true. As you said, the, the, the British are going to have an in-out referendum on EU membership on June 23. It looks from most of the polls like a majority of the British electorate is, are saying we want to stay in. But the polls are sometimes different and sometimes go the other way. And June is a little ways off. And June is a little ways off. And some very prominent and popular British politicians are saying we need to leave the EU. So Britain could actually leave the EU in June. The migrant crisis, you were talking about the difference between how things are seen by the Eastern or Central Europeans, the, the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Hungarians, from the, from the Western European countries, the migrant crisis is an example of that. Germany and the European Commission in Brussels wanted to invoke a clause in the European treaties that said that there should be kind of an even distribution of these refugees throughout the EU. So far, the Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, and the Slovaks, even though they were outvoted in Brussels, have said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to decide who's going to come into our country and how many people are going to come into our country. So there's all kinds of conflicts going on in the EU right now that in many ways started in, in terms of their ferocity, started with the Eurozone crisis. And the Eurozone crisis basically happened because introducing the Euro, the common currency, was not an economic decision. It was a political decision made by those who wanted to find another economic reason in order to force political union on Europe. And the folly of trying to have a common currency for economies of such different levels of development, different levels of productivity, was ignored. It came home to roost with the global financial crisis, which then led to the Eurozone crisis. So the European project could be unraveling, or it might just lead to a reformed EU, in which the EU actually does reverse course. This would happen very, very slowly, and it would be very complex to do. But in which the EU does, in the long term, actually reverse course and become more like the organization of sovereign nation states that Margaret Thatcher envisioned. We'll see. It's a very interesting time. It, it seems as though that the that sovereignty principle is just naturally reasserting itself because of the the migrant crisis uh, you mentioned you know the poles and the Czechs and the, in the the central and eastern European countries uh, they uh, seem to be more interested in maintaining their sovereignty than than acquiescing to Brussels and and maybe that's a, a sign of things to come absolutely 
Well, Todd, it's a fantastic book. I can say if it's if if it were a book that I would judge by its cover, I would I would love it. It's a beautiful book. Uh, it's fantastic uh, to hold a real book in your hands. Uh, but uh, not only is it a book uh, that can be judged well by its cover, it's a book that has a lot and a lot. I, I mean that of a very. Uh, meaty content and anyone with an interest in the state of the world right now uh, anyone with an interest in the European Union and where we're heading uh, really would do well to pick up a copy of this book it's called The New Totalitarian Temptation Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe Todd Heisinger it's really been a pleasure to have you here on Radio Free Acton um, and I want to have everybody everybody who's listening right now should just go to Amazon and pick up a copy of the book Uh, because Todd's done a wonderful job. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you very much, Mark. And with that, another edition of the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty draws to a close. I want to thank uh, once again Todd Heisinger, our Director of International Outreach, for uh, being willing to come on and talk about his brand new book uh, here on Radio Free Acton. The book, of course, is titled The New Totalitarian Temptation, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. It's a beautiful hardback book uh, published by Encounter. You can pick up a copy, I'm sure, in the Acton Bookshop. Uh, head over to acton.org and click on the bookshop link up on the top of the page. Or, of course, you can always go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any other reputable Uh, online bookseller, and and maybe it's even in your local uh, brick-and-mortar bookshop as well. Please do pick up a copy. Todd's uh, written a great book about Europe, and if you have concern uh, or interest in uh, the fate of the European Union, the fate of Europe, and and really in uh, what that means for the rest of the world, because Europe is very important, uh, this is a great book to get a hold of uh, for some real solid insights. So thanks again, Todd, for for joining us on Radio Free Acton, and I want to thank you as well, all of our listeners, for joining us. It's always great to have you along on the podcast, and uh, we do appreciate uh, your patronage. And hopefully, if you uh, know of anybody else uh, who you think would be interested in Radio Free Acton, some of the topics we talk about here, send the links along, and uh, send a link along to the Acton Power blog as well, blog.acton.org. Uh, Always a lot of great content posted there on a daily basis, Monday through Friday. uh, News, information, and commentary from an Acton perspective. That will wrap it up, folks. Again, my name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been my pleasure to bring you another edition of the podcast, and we will see you next time uh, when we bring you the next edition of Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody.